Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson, and you're listening to show number 98. So if you've ever gardened, you may be familiar with the tomato zucchini problem, which is in the beginning of the gardening season, you put a couple of seeds in the ground, and by harvest time, you've got more tomatoes and zucchinis than you could possibly know what to do with. And you try to give them away, you try to can them, you try to freeze them, and you end up, sadly, throwing a bunch of this wonderful produce away or making it into food that you're never going to eat. And there's an awful lot of waste involved in agriculture when we do it in isolation, when we don't do it in community where it's easy to shift the stuff around. Today's guest, Ben Chesler, noticed this problem and is trying to solve it on a really large scale, which is that a huge percentage of the food grown in this country never makes it to anyone's table that it rots in the field, it rots on the way to the supermarket, it rots on the supermarket shelves. And a lot of it actually never makes it because of cosmetic problems. Nothing wrong with the food. It tastes great, but it's not quite beautiful enough to make it into the stack in the supermarket. And Ben and a partner have just started a company called Imperfect that seeks to solve this problem. And in today's interview, we talk about how he came to see it as a problem when most of us simply don't, um, his background as a social entrepreneur and an activist, and what he's doing now to bring hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds of beautifully imperfect produce to people's tables around the country. So without any further ado, Ben Chesler, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, so you just started a company called Imperfect. Uh, fascinating, intriguing name. Tell us about it. Yeah, so basically uh, the idea is that right now about 20% of the produce grown uh, on farms in America uh, actually never never makes it to a human mouth uh, for a variety of reasons. But one of the big reasons is that they're really strict cosmetic standards on produce, and so grocery stores won't take stuff that's even a little blemished uh, just, you know, just cosmetically, uh, is a little too small or the wrong color. And so that produce essentially goes to, to waste right now. Um, and what we're doing is, uh, imperfect is essentially sourcing that produce from farmers, um, to provide them with some additional income, um, and then selling it to consumers, uh, at a 30% discount over what you could find in a grocery store. So you're getting a chance to reduce waste, uh, and also, uh, get produce that's more affordable than you could anywhere else. Okay, so so cosmetic blemishes. Can you give us an example of like what what that would look like? Because when I go to the supermarket, um, you know, I'm, my eye is drawn to the beautiful mounds of of gala apples and you know the you know the the, the gorgeous greens. Like, so what what's it, what is imperfect in, in, from a cosmetic perspective? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a lot of the complexities to the the produce grading system, but um, you know, imperfect or ugly produce can uh, range anywhere from what you see the truly um, grotesque and weird looking stuff, or you know, a carrot that kind of looks like Buzz Lightyear to a heart shaped potato. Um, but it also encompasses a lot of produce that you wouldn't even think about being uh, ugly, quote unquote, produce. So uh, you know, we talked to the farmer who tossed a pallet of forty thousand pounds 
of pink lady apples simply because they were uh, about half an inch too small in diameter uh, to meet the standards of the supermarket. Or uh, kiwis, uh, they call them doubles, that grow together, so there's two kiwis attached. Um, you know, they won't take that in the store either. So uh, some of the stuff is really, you wouldn't tell with the human eye necessarily, other than uh, the fact that grocery stores have pretty strict standards. Huh. Do you have any sense of where those standards came from? Are they are they like regulatory or just some marketer figured something out? No, I think I mean I think it came from basically like Americans, but also the whole world's obsession with beautiful produce. Um, and you know, obviously, hundreds of years ago, you know, produce grows naturally in all shapes and sizes. But as we advanced with technology, we were able to grow produce to exact specifications. You know, exactly perfectly round apples and tomatoes. Um, and consumers wanted it. You know, I think naturally when people go to the store, um, you know, they pick out the choice looking produce because they think that, uh, well, I guess we're obsessed with beauty as a culture is the one reason I would give. And so supermarkets just responded to that demand um, by seeing that basically the produce that was being sold was the stuff that looked uh, the best. It's not, not regulatory, no food safety stuff, simply just uh, consumer preference right now. So does does that impact which varieties and which crops farmers choose to grow, like certain crops like iceberg lettuce, I'm imagining, or like Golden Delicious apples or Granny Smith tend to come out much more uniform, and so there's much less risk for the farmer? Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, obviously, you know, grocery stores have to carry the, you know, the full line of produce, but we've definitely moved to varieties of produce. Um, maybe probably more within each category. So, you know, they still carry all the apples, but within the apple category, they're looking for the ones that have the nice color and they're perfectly round and um, tomatoes and carrots and all that stuff. Pretty much any any produce uh, you can think about grows uh, in all shapes and sizes um, naturally. And you said that right now 20% of the produce grown in the United States is just thrown out? So it's a variety of things. It never makes it to a human mouth. So a variety is about 6 billion pounds, and that was an estimate by the, the National Resources Defense Council put out a report about a year back. That was kind of the preeminent report on food waste. Um, and so a variety of things happen to that. Some of it uh, goes gets sold to animal feed uh, for pretty much next to nothing. Um, some of it is starting to be composted, um, but a good portion of it does end up in the landfill. And, and this business is so kind of, uh, you know, last minute in that, uh, you know, they they pick the produce and they sort it, some of the stuff that we're calling field-packed uh, field produce um, is actually packed in the field. So they actually leave the stuff they know is going to be rejected just sitting on the trees where it rots. And some of the crops like that are uh, shed-packed, like potatoes and carrots that you can't see before you pull them up, they're packed in a shed, and essentially the, the produce that will be rejected is cold. Um and so basically, whenever it's cold, they put it in a separate box and essentially dump it if they don't have a buyer, a buyer for it. Hmm. And, I, and I imagine it's a, it's a pretty um, quick turnaround market. You know, it's not like, you know, gold or silver or even pork bellies that you, you, could, you could store, right? The, the expense of, of storing imperfect produce, ugly fruit, is, is probably so great that if you can't find a buyer like within the hour... Or, or the day, maybe? Yeah, within the day. Work. I mean, essentially, so many of the contracts are, are long-term for produce, you know, supermarket contracts, you know, that we're going to buy produce for the next three years, that, yeah, when they when they call the stuff that, that's ugly or uh, doesn't, doesn't make it to the supermarket, um, 
they have to get rid of it because they don't they don't have the room in the uh, in the sheds to, to store it. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. So yes. Yeah, so go ahead. What else were you going to say? I was also going to say that's one actually. The great thing about Ugly Bird is that, that we really like is that it's actually sometimes a lot fresher because it hasn't been stored. You know, they don't. It's not worth enough to the growers to store for you know weeks in their sheds. And so as a result, the stuff that we get is pretty much straight out, straight out of the field. Hmm. That reminds me of like when I've eaten heirloom tomatoes from someone's garden. That they're they're almost never like perfectly round. You know, Google image tomatoes. They're they're big. They're lumpy. They've got little bits. But they're well, you know, I, I've come to associate that with just a much more vibrant, richer flavor. Um, is that is that also uh, true of some of the imperfect produce that it's just bursting with flavor compared to the more uh, uniform crops? Definitely, I wouldn't say it's like you know markedly different, but I mean it's true. Some of a lot of stuff is directed for being too small and. Um, you know, I think a lot of us feel that the smaller produce actually does uh, have have a better taste to it. And it's funny you mentioned heirloom because I mean, heirloom is also something that there's you know there's no regulation around what you call heirloom, and that actually developed in a similar vein that farmers didn't find a market for their their weirdly shaped produce, and so they started calling it heirloom. And all of a sudden, you can charge you know three dollars more at Whole Foods and get an heirloom variety, uh-huh. and really it's uh, a little a little a little weird looking. <laughs> That's funny. That that reminds me of the um, the story about um, Chilean sea bass. Was, What's that? I'm not sure. I'm familiar with that. Oh, um, it was uh, it's called it was called the Patagonian toothfish, and apparently it was like this really cheap, incredibly ugly. It was like the stuff you know you'd you'd grind up and put in cans for the people who couldn't afford anything better, and then some somebody. Some, oh, yeah. some marketer figured out that if we gave it an exotic name, we could like sell it for nineteen dollars a pound. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, it's true. I mean, farmers are, you know, one thing I want to say is farmers are really responsible, and so they they hate seeing their produce going to waste, and so they they're always coming up with innovative ways to market it. And I think that ugly produce is one of the last frontiers that that hasn't really tapped in, been tapped into because it's true they really want to see their produce being used, and they know that it's good. You know, they they know that this, they wouldn't be selling this if it, it weren't good stuff like the Chilean sea bass. And so I think it's really all about branding it and, and educating consumers that this stuff is is uh, just as good quality. Well, so so yeah, let's talk about consumers. What, do you, you know, you're going out on a limb a little bit with this with a startup. Um, is there any yeah. evidence that consumers want ugly produce? Yeah, there is, and it's been a, a relatively recent trend in the last year or two. I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar with the, the Inglorious Fruits and Vegetables campaign, but uh, this is kind of what sparked the movement. Uh, I think it was last fall, a uh, French supermarket, the third largest chain, uh, Intermarché, um, created a uh, basically started sourcing as a pilot program from their growers uh, ugly fruits and vegetables. You know, they had the like this figure. I'm not going to get these wrong. This figured eggplant. They're grotesque. You know, orange. Um, and they, they had this really brilliant marketing campaign and, and, and made a, a really nice video about it and started putting in their stores under a separate aisle. So, you know, it wasn't actually other oranges, but it was owned essentially like in glorious fruits and vegetables aisle. And they made juices that they gave out of samples to, to show people that the produce tasted the exact same. Um, and they sold out uh, from their stores in two days. Uh, and they saw store traffic increase by 24% at the stores where they carried this. Uh, and the video went viral. I think it has over 3 million views uh, on YouTube. 
and that was what kind of sparked it. And then since then, uh, Woolworth in Australia um, has launched uh, a brand called the. Uh, oh, um, uh, they've launched a brand called I Believe. Mm, eh, I'm gonna get it wrong, but uh, and also uh, Loblos, the, the large Canadian retailer, has started uh, stocking ugly produce, and, and the chef Jamie Oliver, uh, working with a British supermarket, um, has uh, launched a line called Beautiful on the Inside, and consumers are responding, you know, really positively. I don't think there's any data yet. Um, but just some anecdotes from, you know, general managers at some of these stores saying we can't even keep this stuff stocked long enough. People are driving from across the city to get it. Um, so I definitely think consumers are ready for it. And in the U.S., we're starting to see, um, you know, especially farmers markets has been a big resurgence. The knowledge that food doesn't grow naturally perfectly. Um, and it's actually probably... Uh, not necessarily better for you, but it's, it's, it's natural for food to grow in all different shapes and sizes. And I think people appreciate that, like you said, with the heirloom tomatoes. Um, so I think it's starting to catch on in the U.S. And actually, uh, our friends at Bon Appetit Management Company, um, they, uh, they operate food service for colleges, universities, and companies. Um, they actually uh, recently launched a line, I believe, called Deliciously Imperfect. Um, that uh, sources ugly produce for their um, for their customers, and they've had a really positive response from their food service customers, and are actually expanding the program uh, nationally this year. Awesome! So I, I just recently heard about a restaurant in New York City that converted to kind of a uh, food waste test kitchen. Did you hear about this? Yeah, it was uh, Blue Hills, right? I think they changed their name to Wasted for a month and had celebrity chefs each day cook with not just produce, but parts of the um, fish and meat they usually didn't use. I think they had, you know, wings, you know, wings of, of duck and, um, you know, parts of the fish that aren't normally used. And they had chefs drop some really awesome um, menu items around this. And I, I think people really loved it. Yeah, so so I guess it it certainly is taking off. Um, what what do you hope to to bring to the movement? Yeah, so basically our model is is going to be one of the first uh, on the West Coast bringing this directly to consumers. So right now there aren't any U.S. supermarkets stocking uh, this produce, so it's really hard to get just as an individual. So what we're launching with is is a CSA style model where we're going to deliver. Um, You'll sign up for the service, and every week you'll get 10 to 15 pounds of assorted uh, ugly produce, depending on what's in season, um, delivered to your door or to your office, or you can pick it up in the community. Um, and so it's a chance for you to essentially start to learn how to use this, this produce and cook with it. So we're, we're really trying to be the direct-to-consumer um, part of this movement and allowing allowing uh, people in the U.S. to have access to this, this produce that they haven't had access to before. Okay. So, so I got to ask, so uh, people may not realize this, but you're, you're taking time to talk with me before your 10 o'clock class. So you're, you're a senior at Brown University? I am. So like, what the hell are you doing instead of like, you know... <laughs> Get going out, getting drunk, betting on college basketball pools. Like, how did you get involved in uh, in sort of you know responsible entrepreneurship? 
I have to say, yeah, my senior spring has definitely been a lot more uh, focused on this than drinking than I thought it would be. Um, but it's exciting. Basically, um, I, I got involved in the food waste space with actually uh, a guy named Ben Simon, who's my co-founder, one of my co-founders in this new venture in Perfect. Uh, and, and freshman year, we started a, a company or a nonprofit called the, the Food Recovery Network. And it was a pretty simple premise that we noticed that there was food at our dining halls at the end of the day, you know, pans of lasagna or pasta or chicken that had been prepared but just weren't eaten by students and was just getting thrown out. Um, and so we created a way for students to recover that food from the dining halls and then donate it to shelters and meal sites in the community so they could serve it to uh, food and figure people who needed it. And uh, that idea really took off, and we grew from just the original two schools of the University of Maryland and Brown to now being uh, at 127 colleges across the country and 700,000 pounds of food recovered. And so I think in some ways, basically, I, I've spent my college, I was never never a full-time student in the official sense, um, in that I was always taking classes, but really half my brain was always on food waste and the food recovery network. So uh, I guess it's probably just the way that, that I enjoyed doing college, which was uh, kind of applying what I've learned in a practical sense, running organizations. And so this is just kind of a, a natural a natural progression. Plus, I was, you know, it's too hard to find a job. So I figured, why not Why not try and create one for myself? <laughs> I know that feeling. So so you're you're in the dining hall, like your freshman year. And like I was in the dining hall my freshman year. I saw all this stuff getting thrown out. It never occurred to me that there was anything to do about it or that I was the person who could do anything about it. How, how were you raised? Like, where, where did you get that? Yeah. Where did you get that double um, lens of, oh, this is a problem worth solving and I'm the guy to do it? I don't know, right? I mean, we can talk, I guess, for years about nature versus nurture. So who knows? Who knows exactly where I got it from? But I mean, you know, my parents have always been really supportive of what I did. I actually, I met Ben... Um, Simon, we started the food recovery now. We work while well, it was a, a gap year between high school and college. Um, and so they've always kind of been supportive of, of me taking a non-traditional path. Um, and, and really it was, I was looking for something to do. I kind of, I, I was kind of a doer in high school. I did a bunch of political campaigns and worked on another nonprofit and I got here and I was at the Brown, I was feeling antsy. Um, and I asked around, I basically asked a lot of people, hey, uh, do you think we could do something like this? And everybody gave different answers like, oh, there's like, there's food safety, there's laws against donating food, or like, oh yeah, I think they had tried it five years ago and it didn't work and whatever. And I went to the, the associate director of the dining hall and said, hey, can we do this? And he said, yeah, that's a great idea. No one's ever asked us about it. So I think there's this idea that... <laughs> that everyone else was doing something about it. And, you know, it's already been done, but really it was tough to ask. Um, and uh, it, it just, it made so much sense. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I just been dumpster diving in, in high school and I was interested in food waste, but it wasn't like on the forefront of my mind. It was more that I kind of think in systems and it just, the system was broken. It didn't make sense that there was food going to waste when there were people who needed it. And so it just, it just kind of clicked. Mm. As an as an aside, I I really urge everyone to go dumpster diving. It is, uh, you know, for 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 a lot of us, it's a it makes economic sense, and for the rest of us, it is an education you'll never forget. Like if you want to if you want to you know convince yourself that our food system is broken, all you have to do is go to any supermarket that has a an accessible dumpster that you can look inside. And you see stuff that was on, you know, it was for sale 
like at 11.59 and at 12.01, by law, it has to be in the dumpster. Yeah, I mean, and some of it is laws. You're, I mean, I, I also will second that, encourage anyone to go dumpster diving. There have been some amazing films, too. The names are, are eluding me, but where people went dumpster diving, essentially filmed it and, and showed how much food waste there was. I well, think there's, last... there's Dive by uh, yeah, Jeremy dive, Seifert. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, Jonathan Bloom and, and Tristram Stewart have both written, I think, uh, American Wasteland um, and, and Waste, uh, respectively, books uh, about this. And that's true. And, and, this, and you mentioned the laws, and it's funny because labeling is one of the, the most kind of uh, <laughs> mishmashed set of guidelines that uh, you can imagine. I mean, most people think that the, the best by date on food is, is regulated, and it's totally not. Oh, really? It's just 100%, 100% determined by the grocery stores. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's certain things, you know, like, you know, jar of peanut butter that, that have a shelf life of, you know, close to, you know, 100 years. And, uh, and yet, you know, of course, they put the, the best by date a year or two years out. And so as soon as they, they set that date for themselves, when it passed that, they have to, they have to get rid of it. But there's, there's no food safety issues. Now, even milk is good for a week or two uh, after the, the expiration date. And so this kind of labeling system, as it was created, kind of patchwork, is what creates a lot of the food waste at the supermarket level because um, there are no guidelines uh, you know, on a national level about when food actually is, is not good to space to eat anymore. Huh. That I did not realize. Um, so talk a little like the Food Recovery Network, which people can find at foodrecoverynetwork.org. It's huge. Like this is a serious national nonprofit organization. How did you go from, I guess, Ben Simon was it in Maryland? Yeah. So you you were you were at Brown. He was in Maryland. You guys, you know, I could see getting it off the ground at your college, but this is this is to me this is like as, as incomprehensible as Facebook spreading from Harvard. You've got what, like over a hundred colleges. Like, how did you how did you create a system whereby the thing would grow itself, where you weren't constantly pumping in it, like pushing it uphill? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a crash course for running an organization. We. We met up with uh, with students from UC Berkeley and um, from Pomona College, who actually had small scale food recovery programs going. And the four of us just, you know, said, you know, like, you know, like, like you said, basically, this is ridiculous. It doesn't happen anywhere. And and at the beginning, I mean, we were all volunteer. We had no budget. We we were cycling through one month free trial meeting, free trials of go to meeting, you know, so we could video conference each other for you know ten hours a week. Um, try to figure it out, and it was tough. In the first year, I think we probably only went from like four to, to eight colleges, um, and it was a little disheartening, you know, because we knew this idea was so easy, but it was we were running into a bunch of hurdles, um, and some of those hurdles were that uh, you know Brown is and Maryland are both independently operated dining halls, but the four major food service companies, Sodexo, Aramark, Chartwells, and Bon Appetit, operate well over a thousand dining halls across the country. And so whenever you were at a school, and they have their own guidelines, so if, you, if students came to us saying, hey, I want to start this, so my school is operated by Sodexo, and they said they don't donate food. You know, we got, we got some really hilarious responses. You know, Aramark denied that they had any food waste at their colleges, and, and Chartwells refused to even answer our emails. And so that was a really big hurdle for us because there were so many dining halls operated by these companies, we couldn't do anything. And uh, we finally had a breakthrough, actually, when, um, we reached an agreement with Bon Appetit first and then Sodexo, um, which were both really helpful to let us 
uh, work with their colleges, and they, they inform their general managers that this is a program they supported and that if students approach them, they should let us donate food. Um, and at the same time, I still remember, I think it was, um, I want to say it was the spring uh, of my sophomore year, we, we got from the Sodexo Foundation a two-year $300,000 grant um, for fighting hunger to start food recovery programs, and that's really what transformed us. So all of a sudden, we had money to hire uh, Ben Simon as the executive director to work full-time and hire some other staff. And in that year, we essentially went from 20 colleges to, to where we are now, well over 100. So it was really um, that, that funding that took us to the next level, and eventually we signed agreements with all four of the food service companies to help promote our program and let us recover food. So it was, it was not easy, and I just we're hiring a new executive director now, and I'm, I was just reflecting on, on the process, and it's amazing to think how far we've come from five of us literally Skyping, you know, um, in between classes to now having an office and staff. Um, we work with the AmeriCorps VISTA program. It's, it's, it's been an amazing ride, and um, it was definitely a crash course in how to start an organization. Wow. So what, one thing I'm hearing is, you know, when you started talking about uh, Aramark and like, like I started feeling like a little gall rise, like getting kind of pissed off. And that's such a, a common reaction in the environmental community to, to find enemies and to go public and denounce them. And yet with what you were doing, you, you had to kind of convert them. You had to make friends. Uh, was that was that hard or challenging or, you know, how are you thinking about, um, you know, advocacy for these giant organizations that seemingly could just stop you in your tracks? Sure. Yeah. And definitely. And, and, and you know, let me just say it was, it was an, a big moral debate, too, because none of these companies are perfect. And a lot of them have the track record of not being great to their workers and not carrying, you know, local sustainable food. And I think you kind of have two choices and you can blend the the, the the, uh, you know, your tactics, but essentially being confrontational or, or working with them. And, and, you know, there's some amazing organizations like the Real Food Challenge, which is trying to get basically real local sustainable food in dining halls. And they, they've been very confrontational and use more of a grassroots method. Um, and, and they've been pretty successful. Um, and, we, and we chose, I think, basically, we realized that we were going to have to work with them. So we had students pressuring them kind of from the ground up, but we were also in, in talks with them at a high level to say, look, we understand some of your concerns about food safety are valid. How can we work with you uh, to best address them? And we just knew we weren't going to get anywhere unless we had them on board. Um, so in some sense, we were at their mercy. Um, but uh, but it, it was, I think, I would urge anyone, and I'm, you know, came from a pretty political leftist family, um, you know, that has a history of not exactly liking corporations, but I would urge anyone who wants to work in an opera office or the space or, or any job, really, that, you got to learn to compromise somehow and, and work with organizations because you're not going to make change um, solely from the outside. You got to also persuade them to, to move a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. So, so as someone who comes from a sort of left wing, progressive, anti corporate background, um, we we met because you're taking a an entrepreneurship course and getting some some mentoring from one of my best friends, Danny Warshe, professor of entrepreneurship at at Brown. You're you're jumping into the world of um, capitalism. How, how is that going? Yeah. It's you know it's it's it's, it's always rocky, um, but and, and I've had some really great mentors. Uh, first, this guy named Jonah Whitcamper, the serial entrepreneur, and he calls himself an architect of social movements. 
uh, in, in D.C., who mentored me a lot during my gap year, and then also Danny and, and this, uh, Alan Harlem, who is the director of social innovation at Brown. And they kind of introduced me in this world of social enterprise where you could use capitalism, as if you want to call it, or, or really just business forces for good. Um, and I think that government and nonprofits and political advocacy have a huge role to play in shaping our society, but I also believe that, like it or not, like a lot of people are still driven by capitalistic tendencies. So, for example... Uh, food companies can take an enhanced tax deduction for donating surplus food. So, you know, our goal was to get to donate food. So, if, if, you know, if we had to play by their, their playbook and say, look, we're going to be saving you money, decreasing your tax bill if you donate this food, um, it made sense to kind of play to that, you know, play that angle um, and, and tug at their, you know, economic strings to get them to do this. And it's the same thing with uh, Imperfect. So, I, I definitely think a lot of food should be donated. and. Um, uh, that's, we're still doing that with the Food Recovery Network, but basically it costs farmers some amount of money to, to sort this produce and take it out of the field. And so we need to pay them for it. And we want to pay them for it because we want to support farmers. Um, and so we think we can actually get more people to buy this and, and, and reduce more food waste um, by running it as a, as a social venture uh, instead of uh, just giving away the produce. And I think also it's, it goes into the perceived quality. You know, when you're giving away food at a food bank, there's this perception that it's it's not as good quality. And we really think that we have to get people at all income levels to start buying imperfect produce for people to realize that it, it really is the same quality as um, more, you know, perfect-looking uh, produce. Right. That's, that's one of the lessons I've been learning sort of over and over again in the last few years is that as long as we're operating in this capitalist paradigm, which, you know, last time I looked wasn't going anywhere in the near future, yeah. that if we want to, if we want to bring about change, we have to create systems in which it is at least as profitable to do the right thing as the wrong thing. Exactly. And one of those, those developments has been the, the new legal structure that's called the B Corps, the limited or low profit limited liability corporation or in California, the social purpose corporation. And so that's what we're, uh, we're incorporating as. And so it has a lot of the functions uh, and luck of a C-Corps, but it has a social mission built into the bylaws so that no matter what happens down the line, we're guided by principle that we want to make money, but also we have the social mission of reducing food waste and making produce more affordable. And even if we were to sell the company to someone, um, they'd be they'd be tied down to those bylaws of the social mission. And so we think that's like a really awesome development that allows uh, companies to both uh, you know, operate profitably, but also uh, not lose sight of their original uh, social mission. Mm -hmm. So what, one of the things uh, startups have to do often is raise funds. So yeah. is that a challenge to talk to investors who are used to, you know, if they've got a big chunk of money, their question is almost always, where do I get the best return for the lowest risk? Uh, you know, they might be comparing you with, with any, any number of other investments in like food tech you know, or, or health or pills or something. Is it difficult to get them to, to say, you know, we're not in this for the, the highest return. We're in this for something sustainable and generous and good, but limited. Yeah, it's definitely tough. I mean, you know, everyone, a lot of investors we talk to say, so what's the, you know, what's the tech component? Is there going to be after this? And the answer is, you know, no, it's not a tech company. Um, 
But I think we're also starting to see a paradigm shift in investors with the rise of what we're calling impact investors and even some angel investors where they're starting to take a more holistic look at what return means. So part of that is the financial return, but part of that is the return to society um, and the social return in terms of um, how much social good it's creating. Um, and so if we can show them that we can make them a healthy return, but also um, you know create some sustainable change in the world, um, there's there are some investors who are getting into that and, and are willing to take a little bit lower uh, profit economic return in exchange for the social return. And I think it's all about finding the right balance. Um, you know, it's not a you know when we're talking to investors, it's not a donation. We're not asking for money the same way we are with the food recovery network. We're offering them a return, um, but uh, we're also offering them a chance to to give back and contribute to the world. So I think that's actually really exciting for us. And there there are investors who are getting excited about that. Um, which I think is really awesome. Mm, it reminds me a little bit of one, one of my uh, favorite thinkers, Charles Eisenstein, who, who writes in uh, a book, he wrote a book called Sacred Economics. And he talked about like what investing should be is people who say, who walk around saying, hey, I have more money than I need right now. Where can I put it to best use? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and some of that is charity. You know, you're seeing with the, the pledge that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and a lot of wealthy people are saying, you know, to give away half of their income or 90% of their income to, to charity. And some people are doing that and some people are doing it through investing. And I think we're starting to see a range of options for people uh, to to give back because, again, you know, eventually money becomes meaningless. But also, basically, like, we got to shape the world we want to live in. And, you know, you can make all the money you want, but, if, you know, the world's going to, going to all hell and... Uh, you know, we have droughts and global warming and climate change and uh, social problems. You know, you're not going to be happy as a person no matter how much money you have. You can't isolate yourself from the world. And so people are seeing that they're actually benefiting personally from uh, improving improving the world. Right. At a, cer- at a certain level, your money's going to buy you the best birth on the Titanic. Exactly. 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 So you talked about drought. Um, suddenly... <laughs> We've discovered a drought in California, um, which, yeah. which apparently has been going on for a week. If you uh, if you read the media, um, obviously it's been decades in in, in the making. Um, you're starting out with uh, farmers in on the West Coast, probably largely in California. How is this drought going to affect your um, your steps forward? For sure, and, and you know we've talked with a lot of our suppliers, and, and for the time being. Um, you know, agriculture is, is is relatively immune from this, and that they you know weren't subject to the, the mandatory water cuts because we need to, we need to keep eating. But um, and I think it also is just uh, leading to it's good for us. It's leading to a heightened awareness of of all the all the effects of wasted food, and you know one of those is is global warming by emitting methane from landfills. But another one is that it takes you know anywhere from 25 to 50 gallons to, of, of water to grow a pound of produce, depending on the crop. And if that if that produce is going to waste, all that water was was used for for nothing essentially. And so I think it's actually going to help us uh, because people are realizing that we have to use the resources we have, the scarce resources we have, more carefully. Um, and and using all the produce we grow is is a way to do that. Do you happen to know you know because I've seen that uh, you know with Governor Brown's uh, residential restrictions, there's been a lot of criticism. Uh, well, from both sides, but from from the progressive left, that it's 
the residential water usage is just a tiny percentage compared to industrial and agricultural. Do you happen to know how, what percentage of California's water goes to growing crops? I don't off the top of my head, um, but it's, it is a large, large percentage. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very large percentage, if not, if not a majority of the water. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this can have, you know, producing water use on farms or using more efficiently can definitely have way more of an impact than, you know, someone taking one fewer shower uh, per week. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just thinking about, you know, the, your, your intervention, bringing that 20% to market um, is, is, is a lot of a big, bigger difference than a, installing a low flow shower head or, or, you know, waiting till your toilet stinks before flushing it. Yeah, and obviously, you know, everyone, you know, can do what we can, you know, it's like, we can all buy our Priuses, and that's going to be great. But uh, that's only going to work if we also complement it with uh, industrial and commercial solutions to, to these problems. Cool. Uh, so you're starting in on the West Coast. Uh, do you have plans, you know, a la Food Recovery Network to um, sort of pop up all over the place? Um, yeah, I mean, we would love to be, you know, we're aiming to be a national company, you know, because I think this is a much more logistics heavy business than the food recovery network was and, you know, involves a lot of local infrastructure, delivery trucks, um, local marketing, you know, supply chains. Um, we're going to scale a lot more uh, intentionally, whereas the food recovery network, you know, any student who wanted to start a chapter, we could say, sure, let's go for it. Um, but so we're launching in Oakland and Berkeley this summer. The customers there will be able to get uh, the produce. And then in the next year, looking to uh, expand to San Francisco. Um, and then eventually, uh, in the second or third year, also go up to L.A., Sacramento, San Jose, um, San Diego, other California cities, sticking with our same, our same supply. Because half the produce in the U.S. is grown in California. So we really think we want to tap into that supply um, and expand to the West Coast. But I think probably by year four or five, we're going to start to look across the country. There's a lot of... Even if there's not large-scale production farms, there's still produce terminals and ports and border crossings where a lot of this produce comes into the country, um, and there's huge waste there. So we definitely think that uh, we can we can run this uh, in different parts of the country, but we really want to go go deep, improve the model uh, in Northern California first. Hmm. So for folks who are interested, who maybe live live in the Berkeley Oakland area, who want to get started with you, or folks around the country who just want to follow your progress, uh, how can people stay in touch? For sure. And, and I think by the time this, uh, this airs, uh, we will publicly announce the launch of the company. Um, so you can, you can go to our website at www.imperfectproduce.com. Um, and we have a sign up sheet where you can basically stay in touch. Uh, so you give us your zip code and your email and you can stay in touch with our developments. And you can also let you know when we're going to start delivering produce in your area. Um, and we're also, in addition to looking for investment, running a, a crowdfunding campaign to raise $35,000 at the launch of this business. And so that'll be live, and you can find us on Indiegogo if you search Imperfect Produce. Um, and that's really the best way to, to follow our progress and, and help contribute to, uh, to making this a reality. Great. Do you have a Facebook presence as well? Yeah, facebook.com slash, uh, slash Imperfect Produce. And uh, you can also Instagram and Twitter. There's there's a lot of great pictures of really fun pictures of ugly, ugly fruits and vegetables. They'll be up there uh, so you can check out what this stuff looks like. Great. So you, we, we may end up reconceptualizing our, our concept of ugly. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, it starts with produce and it ends with everything. I always joke, you know, we, 
America doesn't just have a produce problem. We have a you know beauty problem where we're judging everything's you know people as well for being different shapes and sizes. And I would love to see us reconceive what what beautiful really is. <laughs> right. Well, and we now have like gap tooth models, so uh, maybe we'll have, we'll we'll start to uh, you know get really um, hot over um, heart shaped uh, potatoes. Exactly. All right. Anything you want to add that I haven't asked about? Um, no, I think I, I've said pretty much uh, pretty much everything. I just, you know, uh, I would urge people, you know, either, you know, if they can't sign up with us to, to you know, start asking their grocery store, start asking, you know, wherever they buy their produce, if, they, if they're stocking ugly produce, because we're going to need to see consumers abandoning it before we change uh, behavior on the corporate level. So, you know, start asking for ugly uh, because uh, the only way we're going to get it. Right. Well, you know, you're, you, you and the other Ben are, are great examples of what a couple of folks can do when they, uh, you know, re- refuse to let the easy reasons why not stop them. So, uh, yeah, we, all, we all have a lot more power than we think. We do indeed. We do indeed. All right. Well, it's almost 10. I, I don't want you to be too late for class. I don't want to get an, a, an angry note from Danny. So, Ben Chesler, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Tyler. It was great talking to you. I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Ben Chesler. I hope you were inspired as I am. It's amazing to me to see people in their early 20s so dialed in to how we can solve our problems and make the world a better place. Uh, At his age, I wasn't anywhere near that and arguably still aren't. So uh, it's great to see several younger generations coming along, really willing to to put in the thinking and the work and working on themselves to, to make this world a better place. Coming up... Episodes 99 and 100 are are in the can and get ready for editing. And they feature two friends of mine who are married to each other, Julie Pyatt and, drumroll please, Rich Roll, uh, who is going to be, Rich is going to be guest number 100 on this show. It happened kind of by accident, but it's really fitting because a little over a year ago, I was on Rich's podcast And he and I were talking about podcasts, and I mentioned that I had this one, and he hadn't heard of it, and neither had anybody else. And he really encouraged me to take it seriously, to put some effort into it, to upgrade my audio equipment, to get onto a publishing schedule. He sent me tons of information via email. He's a very busy guy, and he took the time to help and nurture this. So it's really fitting that I honor him with the 100th episode. And he and his wife, Julie, have written a book called The Plant-Powered Way that will be out uh, actually the day that his interview comes out. And it's a beautiful book. And both he and Julie have a lot of interesting things to say about it. So that's coming up in the next two weeks. And beyond that, um, I don't actually know. I got to start scrambling and looking around and getting some new guests. So I hope you'll keep on the journey with me. And as always, be well, my friends.